Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. We help you get jacked on creativity so that you can make progress in your creative journey. You can follow me on Instagram at Andy J Pizza to stay up to date with Creative Pep Talk and all other things. Pizza. Not, I'm not going to give you pizza news, just my news, stuff that I'm doing. Go check it out on Instagram now, but after the show, let's get into this episode. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. Hey, this is our last episode in the Creative Target Practice series. I'm really passionate about this. We're talking about, you know, moving your creative work from a performance to a practice to, you know, just showing up, doing the whole process, getting it out there, evaluating it, all that good stuff, and, and just seeing it as a as something that you do, as a verb, and, and that at the basis, it's about improving and getting better and pushing that, you know, needle uh, forward. I don't know, what that what is that needle? I don't really understand that, but I say it a lot. Okay, but that's what it's about, and, and not getting so hung up on publishing perfect performances, but instead practicing your creativity. So that's what we're talking about. Um, there's been this uh, great response to the two previous episodes, and I'm most passionate about this episode. This episode is the reason I decided to do the series. Let's get into it. If I asked you, do you want to be good 
your creative medium of choice? Like, would you be like to be good at that? What would you say? You'd say, what are you crazy? Of course I want to be good. I want to be a master of my creativity. Okay. So if we can agree that we'd all at least want to be good at what we do, the follow-up question is this. So you want to be good. You want to get better. Well, what's your relationship to, it's a scary word, hold on to your pants, feedback. Feedback. What? How do you feel about getting feedback? Because I think your relationship to feedback is pr- going to determine how far you go creatively. Now, I've got this friend. His name is Nat Real. But for now, we'll just call him Nat for short. He he's desperate to be a a good archer. He wants to be good at what he does. In fact, he wants to be a master. He wants to have a gold medal at the Olympics for archery someday. Now, Nat came to me the other day saying, man, I'm practicing like a madman. I go to the place where you fire arrows. The shooting, is it a shooting range for archery? He doesn't know. He, you know, he's just getting started. He's not an expert like me. And he's like, I can't seem to get any better. My dreams of Olympic gold are fading. Can you help me, Dr. Pizza? And I'm like, well, well, listeners out there, you might be like, Andy, why is Nat coming to you for archery advice when you know nothing of the sport? Well, speaking as someone who had to look up whether it was even an Olympic sport before I recorded this, I think it's in my fullest jurisdiction to say, don't you ever call Nat Nat again. You barely know him. His name is Nat Real. Anyway, here's what I told Nat. Let me see you practice and I'll share some of my expert pointers. So we get to the bow and arrow shooting place and I'm shocked with what I see. Before Nat fired one arrow, he put on a blindfold. Nat, what the heck are you doing? How are you ever supposed to get good if you don't even know how bad you are? If you hide how bad you are, how are you ever supposed to get good? Nat got all self-righteous, holier-than-thou, smug, and scoffed. Ha! Look at my results. I'm better than that. I don't need some outside metric to know if I'm a success. I measure my success by how much fun I had. I don't want to see the target and let all that feedback get in my head. I have to rid myself of all metrics and critics so that I can get in the zone. I don't need to see what I'm doing. I trust my feelings. And I'm like, damn it, Nat, this isn't Star Wars and you're not a Jedi. If you want to get good at what you do, you're going to have to compare what you did with how close you were to the bullseye and adjust and shift and learn from every missed shot. If you want to go pro uh, in creativity, as Stephen Pressfield calls it, if you want to be good at what you do, you've got to have not just a relationship with feedback, but a sold out, dedicated marriage. This is a hill that I'm going to die on. And I know it's a little bit controversial. I'm taking a stand. Okay. Now, but there's some nuance. I'm taking a stand pro feedback, pro gathering feedback and listening to it and learning pro looking at the bullseye and seeing how close you got to the target. Now, hear me out. This process should start from your soul, your feelings, your flow. That is the time to get all the feedback out of your mind 
and have fun. I am down for that. And I think we hear a lot about that in the creative world. And I think they're right. The thing I don't think they're right about is uh, that it's either or. I think it's both and. It's just different parts of the process. It's not, it, you know, it's not all about planting seeds or all about harvesting, right? It's, it's one in its own season. And there's a time in the creative process at the start, there, there's a time to lose yourself in your feelings, lose yourself in your flow, speak from your own resonant essence. Yes, get the feedback out of your mind, escape it. You don't want to be shooting the shot thinking about, is my form right? No, that will give you the creative yips. But after the shots have been fired, after the game's over, you need to have a relationship to feedback. You got to be watching your tapes. Now, that relationship should be purposeful, and you should realize that not, not all feedback is created equal, but feedback must be a part of your process. In my opinion, the creative process isn't even finished until you have delivered your creative work to an audience and got feedback and analyzed and figured out what do I need to shift how do I need to change my game next time so that, not so that you succeed, not so that you earn a buck, not so that you pander to an audience, so that you know whether your creativity connected, whether the purpose of what you created actually landed. Because I believe that creativity is not about glorification of the individual, but connection in the community. And you need to know, not was what you thought was funny, funny, but were you able to take what you thought was funny and show them why it was funny? Were you successful at hitting your target? And you might say, you know, artists are a bit squeamish about feedback, uh, you know, uh, but not to the point of the blindfolded archer, you know. Well, maybe not you, but look, I lied to you. Not real. It is real. He's me, but just metaphorically, because for the longest period in my creative career, I didn't just blindfold myself. I took it a step further. If you'd have asked me, Andy, do you want to be a good illustrator? I would have said, yes, of course I want to be a good illustrator. I want to be a master, a gold medalist illustrator. I want to be good. Now, I'm just going to digress for a minute. Have you ever seen the movie Three Amigos? Well, the bad guy in that, El Wapo, asks one of his henchmen, he says, uh, Hefe, do we have a plethora of gifts? And Hefe says, yeah, I would say that we had a plethora. And then El Wapo says, Hefe, what is a plethora? And guess what? Hefe doesn't even know what a plethora is. And so how could Hefe speak to whether they had it? How would he even know if they had it, right? And if I asked that past me, Andy, so you want to be a good illustrator. But Andy, what is a good illustrator? I couldn't even have answered you. I had no idea. It was as if I wasn't just blindfolded. But it was as if I was an archer who didn't even know what a target was, let alone a bullseye. And so if you are practicing today and you want to be good at what you do, you're going to have to come to terms with 
how bad you are and reveal that. But also, you're going to have to define what is good. You're going to have to define your target. Now, just wait a minute. We're going to get to this thing in a minute. Before you start saying, Andy, I've heard you talk about this before with comedy. We know that they're trying to get laughs. Well, illustration's just not like that. Music's just not like that. I don't know why I talk like this. That's probably your first problem. No one wants to hire someone that sounds like that. So just stop talking like that and listen. I want to get into how this applies to every form of creativity with specific examples so that you can shut up about saying, all Andy ever talks about is stand-up comedy. Well, I think that they are the masters, and I've told you that, um, but I'm going to bring it, I'm going to show you how people have taken the lessons of creative target practice that we see within the stand-up world into other forms in legitimate ways that have been career-changing, so just you wait. Let's do it. Okay, so we got four points that I want to get to uh, and, and some homework, but I, and I'll get to that in one second. But I just want to say, you know, I watched Saturday Night Live this Saturday, and it was glorious. I felt like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to just give you a review of it, but Dave Chappelle was the host, and they let him do some kind of open mic stand up which they'd never done on Saturday Night Live before and it was just personally huge for me because I live in Ohio and we were lucky enough to go to two of the uh, Cornfield Yellow Springs Ohio Dave Chappelle events socially distanced events where they um, did stand up in a field and it was a religious experience. <laughs> it was so amazing. And it was amazing to watch Dave workshop stuff out in that field and then transcend in that moment, take the best of that stuff and take it to the next level in his monologue for Saturday Night Live. It was amazing. It was powerful. And I felt like I was a part of it as a fan. And that was really special to me. But the reason I'm talking about it now is that on this show, we're constantly talking about how the, the, the practices of stand-ups can help every creative be their best, and we can, there's a lot we can learn from them. And sometimes I get a pushback that's like, yeah, but not every, you know, not every, this is one of the things that really frustrates me is when I hear feedback that's talking about how, um, you know, well, that's just stand-up, or that's just music, or that's just illustration. For me, personally, I feel like the best lessons are the ones that are learned and applied from outside of your medium, especially if it's not commonplace, especially if it takes some strategy and some trial and error to apply it. And we saw that on Saturday Night Live. I heard someone, like after his monologue, they went straight to this skit about Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben getting fired. And I highly recommend it. It was hilarious. But I heard someone on Twitter say, that was the best one-two punch of Saturday Night Live that we've ever seen. Dave's opening monologue in that skit that followed. Like, it was so, so fantastic. We haven't seen this level of uh, uh, success on Saturday Night Live in years and decades. But what he didn't know was that that following skit was taken directly from Dave's work out in the cornfield. Like that whole skit about Aunt Jemima came from material he's been workshopping in 
Yellow Springs. And we got to hear that. And so it, it was cool to be like, yeah, I know. Like, you know, I know insider information. But what was cooler than that was seeing how Saturday Night Live could actually crystallize their material, change the game if they did creative target practice, if they did the things that we're talking about in this episode. And then I started to realize that it's no wonder that Chappelle's show was so massive because it was probably a bunch of stuff that was road tested, stuff that was tested in the target practice of working it out in the club. And the same goes for Seinfeld. You know, all, so much of that material started with little things that Jerry worked out on stage in front of people in real time with creative target practice and seeing if it actually land before they made the special, before they made the final result. And so it was really interesting to see something that I'm sure tons of people would say, oh, well, it's great for stand-ups, but you can't apply that to a sitcom. You can't apply that to Saturday Night Live, but they did. Now, we're going to take it even further than that, okay? So number one, first thing you got to do is define your target because, yes, that is one of the ways that we're going to – that's a challenge we're going to have to, uh, you know, meet because – Comedy is kind of like basketball. Like the point of basketball is so obvious. You just put the, the ball in the hoop. You get laughs. That's what you're trying to do. Now, great comedians would tell you it's not that simple. You, you, you don't want to just hit a target. You want to hit a bullseye. Like the, and, and for you, you're a bullseye. You have to define that. That has to be your point of view. Your bullseye is going to be different to other comics. Some comics want cheap laughs or crass laughs, and some comics want laughs that make you ponder philosophical quandaries, right? But, but, but comedy is, we'll call it basketball. It's put, put it in the hoop. You score more points, you win, right? But what about illustration? What about music? What about Journalism, what, you know, what, what about all of these other fields of creativity that the target just isn't as clear? There is no win or lose. So if there's no win or lose, there's no point, right? There's no, there is no target. Wrong. You know you're wrong. I would say a lot of art is less like basketball and more like the Harlem Globetrotters, okay? And if I said, if you know, if you don't know Harlem Globetrotters, were you even alive in the 90s? They were, they were in like every special episode of TV shows. I, I, I believe Hanging with Mr. Cooper had a special one, if I, my memory serves me. But, uh, but, uh, but they basically do a bunch of fancy tricks and, and crazy dribbling and, and dunking and passing. And it's, you know, it's like they call it, it's like jazz. Um, it's artistic. It's poetic. It's not so simple as scoring points. It's a show. But just because there's no winning or losing doesn't mean there's not a point. The point is to wow the audience, right? That's the target. And, and I think that for them, they have to set, they have to set the, the objectives. And so I imagine that Harlem Globetrotters, it's not what a lot of creative people think when they go into the studio where they're doing Ouija board creativity, you know, where you're just like moving the brush around the canvas and being like, I just let it have its own mind. There's place for that. I'm I, like, I do that sometimes and it's fun. You can get some cool stuff and I'm sure the, the Globetrotters sometimes accidentally stumbled into a cool move, but I'd say more often than not, it's more boring than that. It's probably more like a game of peg with yourself. 
if you've never played pig, it's just you're usually playing with one other person and one person takes a weird shot. And if they make it, the other person has to make it in that same weird way. But that's how I imagine these kind of routines come together for the Globetrotters. They're, you know, they're like, what if I threw it off the backboard, grabbed it in midair, did a twist and passed it to my friend? Like, and just do it over and over and set their own target just like you do in pig and that's what most creativity is like you've got to be the one to define the target what is good illustration there really isn't one answer for that you know for but but it's your job as an illustrator to determine what is good illustration to you and i think for me i've personally kind of been wrestling with this for a decade i would say and i think for me my favorite illustration and the illustration that I think that I'm – that's really in my essence is literal narrative stuff that captures a feeling, you know, not just slice of life but usually slice of life mixed with some fantasy to kind of drive the, the point home of what it really feels like to be, you know, listening to a record, drinking a whiskey or uh, going on a journey or, you know, whatever, right? How? What are the mechanics of how to produce and hit that target of making people feel exactly as I feel as I'm experiencing these things? But I, you know, I've been trying to figure that out. A great example of defining the target that isn't comedy is Mauro Gotti. He has a project called the Happy Broadcast, and I imagine for him, an easy way of defining the target if. It, 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 he, he has this Instagram project where he shares good news that he illustrates. It's like editorial illustration with a, with a headline that shares something good that's happening in the world. It's called the Happy Broadcast. And, uh, and, and, and I imagine an easy way to measure that is news that's really good, people can't help but share it. And so if he has got their attention, got their buy-in with the illustration and, caught, and, and got them to share it, he knows he's doing something right. And, and and that is a very defined target. I'm not sure that's exactly what he does, but I imagine that would be an easy target to measure and, and calculate and figure out what kind of news stories to, to be telling, what ways of getting people's attention, what types of illustration got people to sink their teeth into that headline, got them to go from the picture to the headline. You know, it reminds me of book designers. They talk about, you know, the title of your book, the purpose of it, the, the target that you're trying to hit is that they'll read the tagline. And the, and the purpose of the tagline is that they'll read the back of the book. And, and, the, and the purpose of the back of the book, the target they're trying to hit is that they'll open it and read in the first sentence. And the first sentence is supposed to get them caught into reading the book. Every target superly, superbly defined. And so what is your target? What would success look like? What, what's the target? But then what's the bullseye? What if you did this? For me, it's, I've learned. I actually have been really diving into this. And I think it's, it's emotion-based. It's heart-based for me. It's not cerebral. And I think I've gotten distracted over the years sometimes, getting really cerebral, trying to be clever, whatever. And it's not clever can be a fine thing as long as it hits the target for me of an emotional response, be it pepped out of your brain or feeling your feels on the deepest level. But what that's helped me do is it's not just helped me define my target. It's helped me calibrate my inner metal detector for finding that creative gold. And so what I've noticed now is 
if I'm having extreme emotion, I'm putting that in the bank for potential creative work, for potential illustration later of I want to use that for fodder for my illustration because that's that's the target I'm trying to hit. And so that that's kind of what happens if you'll start defining your target. Okay, the next thing you got to do, number two, is find your club where you can write on stage. So for comedians, they've created a whole system where it's obvious where the club is. It's the club. That's, that's the metaphor that we're using. But they have this understanding. They have a system. You know, I love looking at different mediums, things like, you know, we, in the past we've looked at musicians. They have such clear seasons in their work. You know, they have the writing season. They have the recording season, they have the publishing season, they have the touring season. It just has this rhythm to it. And I think we can all learn from that. But I think what the comedians have is they have really perfected the art of creative target practice. And and they have these comedy clubs. If you ever are in LA or New York, highly recommend checking out the comedy cellar in New York or, or the comedy store uh, in LA or there's a whole bunch of them. And there's some of my favorite experiences that I've ever had. There's, it's so fun. You know, we went to, um, I think it was, I think it was the comedy store in LA and we happened to catch, um, a comedian that I'm a big fan of who I got into when I was living in the UK, Jimmy Carr. And he came out with a, an actual, uh, clipboard, and just was reading material and crossing stuff off and, and, and checking things and, and, you know, trying different things in real time based on how the audience responded. And it was just freaking brilliant. And before you get into like, you're pandering to them, he didn't come out and say, what do you guys think is funny? No, he said, I think these are things are funny. This is my attempt at sharing why I think they're funny. Was I successful in transferring what I know in my heart, what I believe in my heart, what comes from my soul into your soul. It's a, it's not a test of whether your soul was right. It's a test of, are you good enough at the medium, at the practice of getting it from you to them? Okay. Anyway, highly recommend it, but they have these clubs. They have a place that is, it's understood. This is for target practice. This is for trying it out. And, uh, but other mediums, we're going to have to get creative and I'm going to give you a few examples of people who have not been, you know, satisfied with the clubs available with the, with the places, um, the spaces to test out material and decided to do things differently to take advantage of and create their own creative club where they can write on stage. One example I've heard of recently is David Sedaris talks about this on Mike Birbiglia's podcast. When he goes on book tour, he's an author, okay? And when he goes on book tour, he doesn't read from the book that he just put out. He reads from his next book. And he, he reads it with a pen and he crosses stuff out and he adds notes in real time based on how it's received. And you could, yeah, he's doing it through the lens of humor. So he's probably looking for comedy, but I can tell you one thing I've been on stage and when I'm telling a heartfelt story, that's meant to be a tearjerker. I can tell, I can feel the energy in the room. 
So it doesn't, it's not just, it's not just because it's humor. Uh, so, so he's used his book tour as his club. 1975, one of my all-time favorite bands. They don't get enough credit. If you're still judging them as being like a boy band for, for teens, you suck. Um, <laughs> not, not really, but I do highly recommend them. I think that they are uh, real, real special. And uh, even though, you know, I, some, I don't relate to all the things. He's quite a bit younger than me. And there are things that, you know, just in terms of whatever. But here's the thing about the 1975. I think that one of the reasons they're so good uh, is their practice, uh, especially starting out. I highly recommend musicians until you have hits that you would use EPs as your club. You know, before they ever had their debut album, they had four EPs. They made, uh, and then they they pillaged those EPs for the hits and made those the big songs on their album. And the thing is, you have the gift of relative obscurity. If you're not a huge success, nobody is paying attention to you to the degree where they're like, wait, that was on the EP. No. And if they are, those are your true fans and they they love being part of the journey, right? But here's what they did. They released those four EPs and they were able to kind of make mistakes. They were able to try things, but they were also able to see what worked. And by the time they got, uh, I think even Chocolate was on their big hit that put them on the map was on their fourth EP. And I think single culture and EP culture, you can use that to write on stage as your club. And and once you release enough and you gain enough evidence, you look at, oh, these songs performed well with this audience. And it might be Spotify listens, but it might be comments on Instagram. It might be, you know, it might be your patrons on Patreon that are, they're freaking out. They can't get enough of this one particular song. And you think, you know what? Let's go. Let's create more songs in that vein because it felt right to us. It feels right to them. So find your club, and, and, and as you're defining whatever this club is, a really important thing to know is choose the right club. Not all comedy clubs are created equal for your particular point of view. You might need the alternative club, the club where people are trying out weirder things that don't have punchlines, and they're more character-based, and they're, you know, they're based on cringe and pushing the limits and you know, Kaufman-esque kind of stuff. So when you find your, don't just say, oh, mine's Instagram. You know, you can, you need to get more specific than that. Not just Instagram, but uh, it's based on shares because of the type of targets I have, or it's based on comments and it's based on what type of comments. It might be, like I said, it might be Patreon. When I, I did, a, when I did my um, review of the episode art, you know, the people on Patreon gave me very different feedback than the people on Instagram. And the people on Patreon are my true fans. And I give them a little bit more credit. I take their stuff a little bit more seriously. And so not all clubs are created equal. Make sure that you're not just putting it, not just doing the obvious thing of Spotify listens. It, there might be better ways to get more uh, nuanced opinions and feedback because feedback is not created equally. There are people that are going to freaking hate you even if you're the best. You've heard that quote on Instagram, that idea of, uh, you know, you can be the juiciest peach in the world, but there's still going to be people that hate peaches. 
right? Like, you know, you could be out there trying to be a peach and and you're like, what do you guys think? You're like, mm, it needs to taste more like apples. You're like, well, it's not an apple. You know what I mean? So you got to find the right club. You got to make sure, keep that in mind. Not all feedback is created equal as you look for and define your club. But I just want to say one more thing about this. Do not do the lazy thing past Andy and say, well, my illustration just doesn't have a club. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And if they don't, it's your job to make one because you can't be good if you don't know how bad you are. And the only way you're going to know how bad you are is to work it out in real time with real feedback. And so you got to construct that club, baby. Okay, number three. So number one was define your target. Number two was find your club to write on stage. Number three is make your special. Once you have made enough material that you think is up to snuff. By the way, musicians, this is what it's all about, man. Like I see so many musicians that get so caught up at releasing the wrong thing, releasing subpar work, releasing stuff that's going to put off their audience. Do that in the EPs, man. That's a great playing ground. Do that. That's your club. That's where you can write on stage. But when you've got enough, and, and the thing is, the writing on stage is so essential because there is a looseness that I think you got to approach the creative work with. You've got to approach that the, the songs with, this might be a hit or this might be a dud or this might be an album track that's just a weird thing that is cool, but it's not a single. But you got to let some of those things be what they want to be. You've got to let yourself not grip so tight that everything has to be a hit. Like if that kind of energy is not where you're going to find your flow, I think that's just neuroscience. Okay, you've got to have you got to be more open. You've got to be more free. You've got to let, you know, let some stuff be bad or let some stuff be weird. Or, and I think the best way to do that is to work it out in the club. But then if you do that long enough, you're going to get enough hits to put out a killer, no filler album, just like some 41. That's what we all want. Uh, we all just wish we were like them back in the day. Not really. I never listened to them. I thought they sounded dumb. Okay, that's too harsh. I don't know. I don't even remember what they sounded like. You're fine. I don't know. Maybe you're great. Anyway, I don't like being mean. Uh, but uh, you need to, once you have all that, once you have a bunch of good stuff, you can make your special. You know, your comedy special, your Netflix special, your Comedy Central special. Oh, but Andy, I'm not a comedian. Shut up, past Andy. You can still learn. That's what David Sedaris does, right? David Sedaris, what is his special? It's a book that he publishes. You know what my special is as an illustrator? My calendar. I make upwards of 45 episode artworks for this podcast every year. And that episode art is one of my clubs where I try it out and I'm pushing it, trying something different, trying to see something new, trying to see what works. And I don't need all 45 to be killer because if I did, I wouldn't try anything new. But once a year has gone by, I look back through the work and I pick out 12 pieces to be the calendar. And that calendar is my illustration special. That calendar works as a portfolio from that year. That calendar is, this is the best of the year. And it changes over time and it gets better at hitting the target that I'm trying to hit, right? So 
have your, and when you get to the special, that's where you can start thinking about monetizing. When you actually have some good stuff that is worth something, that's when it's time to monetize. You don't have to worry about monetizing every single creation that you publish, everything that you put out there. You can put out a free blog post and then monetize the five posts that were the best, put them together and make a book. I so strongly believe in this ecosystem of creativity. And it brings us to number four. Number four, and the point of this entire target practice series, it's why I started this whole series, is number four, let the gatekeepers come to you. So when you have defined a target, you've found your club, and you've made your special on your own without anybody's permission, you that can be your creative ecosystem forever, and you don't need anybody else to give you attention. You don't need a, a brand or a publisher or a record label. You don't need them. You don't need to waste your time pitching to them, lost in the proposal world, lost in a creative proposition rather than deeply uh, engaged in a creative practice. And, I, and we talked about this in a previous episode, the difference between a comedy actor that only ever performs someone else's script and someone else's material that's at the mercy of the casting director versus a stand-up comic that has this ecosystem of defining the target, finding their club, and, and making their special. They don't need them. They can wait until the telephone rings. Meanwhile, they're getting busy, getting good. And so you can let the gate, it's, I'm not saying you should never pitch or you should never do a proposal. I'm not saying that, you know, there, I've had good stuff with that and I still do that, but that's not where my creative focus is. My creative focus is on hitting targets. And if you do that enough, word's going to get out. If you're showing up to the archery firing target range every day and you're hitting bullseye after bullseye after bullseye sooner or later a crowd's going to form sooner or later the owner of the range is going to be like what the heck's going on why is there's this freaking crowd of people around uh, uh, lane four is it lanes like bowling <laughs> i don't know but what what why are all these people they're gonna say and they're gonna hey they're gonna call their friend who's a coach and that coach knows another coach that coaches people in the olympics and the word is gonna get out if you're so good that they can't ignore you in the words of Steve Martin. And so you do all this stuff and then you let the gatekeepers come to you. That's why we're doing this process because I believe that if you will make your creativity a creative target practice, that nothing else can stop you. All right, some homework quickly. Here's my homework. It's uh, make a gift. If you can't, you know, you don't need to run. And uh, I do encourage you to define your target and, and find your club and, and make your special and, and all that stuff. But in the, in the short term, you can start acting on this right now by making a piece of work that's a gift for someone who has the same taste as you. Okay, and, and, and this is just getting that relationship to feedback in real time. And, and I want one part of the gift to be three revisions from that person. So part of the gift is giving them the gift of inviting feedback. You know, I made a, 
a piece of work for my brother's kid, my my nephew, and uh, and it was a portrait and had a bunch of the things that he liked on it. But what I could have done is said, this is the digital version, uh, but I want three critiques. How would you change it? Uh, not just my brother, but maybe his son too, and say like, you know, did I put the right characters on? Would you want me to change this person? What, you know, how could I make this better for you? And I think that if you, you know, I'm not the first to say like, see your creative work as a gift, it will change your perspective. But I've found this out in real time. You know, there's a Switch game, Nintendo Switch called Mario Maker, where you can make Super Mario Nintendo levels. And, uh, and it's pretty fun. Like it's pretty fun to sit there and make levels and try different things and what have you. But most of the fun of creativity and the most of the fun of this game was making levels so that I could watch my son enjoy them. And I think that some of us are not motivated to create creative work because we have lost the connection to feedback. We have lost the idea that our work is a gift. There is some beautiful, pure, egoless power and fuel in making stuff for the enjoyment of people that you love. And Mario Maker is a good time, but I couldn't have had much fun or made as many levels as I did if I didn't know that I was going to watch my son enjoy them. And when I watched him enjoy it, I learned so much about how to make it better, how to make it more surprising, what I could do to take it to the next level. That's the power of in real time watching people interact with your work. And I think that uh, so I recommend you do that. The homework is make a piece of work for someone with similar taste to you and, as a gift. And, and part of that gift is that they get three revisions so that you can get that relationship to the, to the work. But I want to encourage you to take the blindfold off. You know, I think that... Um, we get scared that we're going to build up the ego by listening to people, by getting feedback. But I actually think that the cure to, you know, the ego getting in the way isn't to separate it. Ego is separation, by the way, but we don't have time to get into that. Uh, it's to humiliate it. <laughs> it's to humble it. I think that, you know, there is a time when stand-ups are getting started and they realize how bad they are. They've really been humbled. They've taken the blindfold off and they've seen that they don't, they didn't hit a bullseye. They didn't even hit the target. They're standing in the wrong direction. But it's in that humility that you can actually start taking actions to get closer and closer to hitting your target. And if you've ever talked to a creative master, a real master, you're going to find that they have been humbled, that their relationship to the work is not one of master and servant. It is to servant, to master. Like the, the creative work has mastered them. Neil Gaiman famously says that you never learn how to write a book. You only learn how to write 
the book that you're writing. And then when you start, yeah, you get better. It's not that you don't get better at writing every book you write. You do. But each individual one is a new creative challenge. And every comic that I've spoke to treats the work that way, treats comedy with that kind of reverence because they know how bad they are. And so it's time to take off the blindfold, face the facts, you turned the wrong direction, and you've been hitting Aunt Sally in the butt with your arrows. It's not funny. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's turn it around. Let's humble ourselves before the work. Let's humble ourselves before the feedback. Because as bad as you might be when we actually face the facts, that's the only way to get good. Hey, if you want to help out the show and you want to give us some feedback, the best place to do it is on Apple Podcasts. Reviewing and rating the show there somehow makes a huge difference to people getting to hear it. And we read all those. And if you're picked, we might even read it on the show. Here's one that we got recently that I really liked from B Riggs A181. Uh, amazing. Where has this been all my life? Uh, and I like this one because it's from a fashion designer. And our show has just increasingly become so, uh, the, you know, diverse in the types of creatives that listen to it and that are on it and all that. That's kind of the hope of the show because I, I believe that, that, that we have so much to learn from each other and all that stuff. But um, this is what B-Rig said. I just found this podcast today and as a creative in brackets fashion designer, it speaks to so many insecurities that I've kept locked away. I got a little bit teary-eyed on that because I'm insecure. <laughs> and I, you know, I've, I've, I'll, anyway, but ultimately hindered me from my success. I'm only one episode in and I'm hooked. Thank you for your honesty and courage to do this podcast for us. Small fries with big dreams and I can't wait to hear more. B-Riggs, thank you for sharing your vulnerabilities with us and, uh, and for rate and review in the podcast. Go on the Apple Podcasts app and rate and review Creative Pep Talk now and you can subscribe there too. Um, and maybe we'll read your review next time. Thanks, B-Riggs. That's it for Creative Target Practice Series. It's not the last you're going to hear this stuff. This is huge building blocks to uh, creative success, in my opinion. Um, had a blast. And thanks for all the lovely feedback. I could see some deep, deep, deep enthusiasm about the past couple episodes on this. And I'm really proud of them. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for our soundtrack. Thanks to Sophie Miller for being my wife and <laughs> listen to me talk endlessly and give me feedback on how to improve. She's a 
She is a big part of the content of this podcast. Thanks to Ryan Appleton for uh, similar things and for scheduling and, and managing and um, content assistance. Thanks to Jordan Aaron for editing the show so beautifully and putting all those fun little doodads and whistles, bells and whatnot. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Until we speak again, I, well, I hope that this episode just jacked you out of your mind on creativity. I hope you're 385% jazzed on creative stuff right now, ready to go. Just go make some gifts. Um, But until we speak again, do whatever it takes to stay pepped up.